Welcome to On the Mark, a podcast series that explores the effect on various businesses of the COVID pandemic and how companies can survive and thrive during these difficult times and beyond. I am your host, Howard Mark Rubin, and this podcast series came about as a result of my realization that as a senior partner of the law firm of Gifts Fitzpatrick for over 30 years, representing businesses as an advisor and corporate attorney, that this pandemic has permanently changed the way business was being done. It has had such a diverse effect on industries and the people who work in those industries that it was important to address what is in reality, what is fiction, and what the future holds. I've been fortunate in my career to have many good friends and clients who are top in their fields, and those people are going to be guests in this podcast series. Sponsoring this series is going to be the Strategic Forum, which was founded in 1999 in New York City and expanded in 2004 to South Florida. It is an organization consisting of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business leaders who believe in forming deep business and personal relationships based on mutual respect and trust and continual learning and intellectual enrichment. Current membership of the Strategic Forum represents a diverse group of public and private businesses and organizations. One member of the Forum will always be a guest on these series of podcasts. I have some exciting guests today to talk about the investment real estate industry and residential real estate industry. Two good friends of mine and uh, people who are certainly at the top of the field. Joining us is Paul Massey, who you may know from a lot of different uh, places. He's presently the CEO and founder of B6 Real Estate Investors, which was formed in July 2018 and focuses on investment sales and capital advisory in the middle market. Paul, of course, was previously CEO and founder of Massey Knackle, which is an iconic real estate brokerage firm in New York, which consistently ranked as New York's number one investment sales firm in volume for 14 consecutive years until he and his co-founder, Bill uh, Bob Knackle, sold the company to what eventually was uh, Cushman and Wakefield, which Paul for some time joined as head of investment sales before founding B6. As you may recall, Paul also ran for mayor of New York City and uh, his withdrawal from the race and what's happened since shows that it was a much bigger loss for the people of New York than it was for Paul. Our other guest is Sarah Thompson, who is co-founder of the Leventhal Thompson team at the Cochrane Group, where she and the team is regularly a member of Cochrane's multi-million dollar club every year and ranked in the top 1% of NRT's 45,000 sales associates and has been of one of Wall Street Journal's top 250 teams nationwide. In short, no one knows the real estate, residential real estate better, of market better in New York than Sarah. She's also a member of the Strategic Forum. At the end of this podcast, there will be contact information should anyone have any further questions or wish to contact myself or any of the guests. Paul, before we get into the topic at hand, tell us a little about why, after reaching the top of the real estate brokerage market with Massey Knackle and forming such an iconic company and then deciding to, to sell, you decided to, to start all over again and form B6. Uh, why did you do that other than to provide me with some more legal work? <laughs> and, to, and to that point, Howard, uh, 
is thank you for having me on the show. You have served us uh, professionally for years, and you are, you know, at, you are in the pantheon. Um, so we've always felt uh, very lucky about our association with you, um, Sarah. It's great to be here with you. I uh, I admire your what the work you do. I also admire your firm very much. I I had a, a mentor in Barbara Corcoran when I was a young commercial agent and uh, have remained friends with her. And I'm thrilled to see that she never stops and doing what she's doing now. And um, so uh, thanks to both of you. Um, the short answer is, Howard, we love what we do. We always uh, loved what we did in terms of um, building a commercial brokerage firm. Um, we We got lucky back in the day where the niche that we're in, which is um, middle market investment sales, um, that's that's code for small and mid-sized buildings, um, was very fragmented. Nobody, none of the national players were dominant in that niche. Uh, it was a little bit the Wild West. It was disorganized. And we and others at the time put some structure around the business, worked, focused on specific neighborhoods. Um, so we were selling... Um, uh, but 500 buildings a year by the time we sold uh, Massey Nackle. So we, we had a very nice niche in that business and um, had benefited from the, the, the business becoming organized. Um, the, re the reason for B6 is that we also at Massey Nackle had a small debt practice, debt brokerage practice. And we saw how investment sales brokers and debt brokers work hand in hand together in a very strategic way for the clients. Um, there are about 3,000 building sales every year in the five boroughs um, uh, out of 200,000. So it's a low velocity business. Um, most most economic driven decisions come down to the fact that after you pay all the taxes, the capital gains, um, the transfer taxes, city transfer tax, state transfer tax, legal fee, brokerage fee, um, you're better off holding a building long-term, so that's what most people do, uh, but they refinance every four and five years. So instead of 3,000 uh, sales transactions, there are about 13,000 debt transactions, and it's about $130 billion of flow in New York City. Um, so we want, a, we want a big piece of that, and I think the debt practice in, in New York City currently reminds us of what it was like in the uh, in the early days of Massey Nackle, where there's there's a very fragmented market and a very big opportunity. Well, so that it's more than just uh, Massey Nackle too. It actually has a different focus, and um, that sounds like uh, a very smart move. As uh, as you know, the market and and uh, there's great opportunities there. Yeah, the um, one of those things we did at Massey Nackle that I will take. Uh, some credit for is that we gave away a lot of market information. Uh, we had troops uh, in every submarket. We fed the we fed the market uh, sales comps, um, land sales comps, development comps, um, and made the market more transparent. So it made people brave to go into markets they hadn't already been in, um, particularly the boroughs. We were in Brooklyn before it was Brooklyn. Um, and that that was that was helpful to people. It made them understand, um, and 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 made them made them brave about what they would uh, 
what they would pay for things. So um, the debt business is the same way now with the current technology we have, which is new technology. We're going to be able to report to people on who's lending in what markets, what interest rates are they charging, what loan values are there, what loan types, what product types. And so we're hoping to bring some transparency to what is really an opaque market now. And um, that that could potentially bring new entrants into the market as well. So we're excited about that. Well, that sounds very exciting, Paul. And I know if you're involved in it, it's it's uh, it's got to be cutting edge. And with Sarah, <clears throat> when the pandemic when the pandemic hit New York in mid March, the real estate industry, the residential industry particularly, was literally not allowed to function. Everything froze. Although some realtors use technology and ingenuity to keep some of the operations going. Essentially, nothing moved for a period of months. Many buyers and sellers quarantined, taking themselves out of the market altogether. That unprecedented pause led to wild swings in housing data, and equilibrium has not returned yet. For each month, from April to July, home sales were down in the five boroughs by at least 40% compared to 2019. According to StreetEasy data, in April they fell 53.1%. New contracts on Long Island saw a 34 and 38.8% increases for single-family homes and condos, respectively, according to Miller Samuel. The number of Hampton single-family houses sold went up 75.7%. Sarah, between people realizing they can work virtually and the increase in taxes that are going to be required to keep New York afloat, is there any reason for optimism that these people are coming back to New York and the residential real estate market is going to be back to where it was? I 100% think there's optimism. Uh, First of all, it's my personality, but also the great thing is we're seeing it in the data, which I'll get into. I just want to say also thank you, Howard, so much for having me on this show. You're an incredible professional and philanthropist and a good friend, and I'm happy to be here. And Paul, you are incredible, an incredible titan and visionary in commercial real estate and industry and, and politics and everything. So I'm, I'm happy to be here with you as well. Um, I have great respect for you both, but optimism in the city, absolutely. Of course, as you've mentioned and talked about, technology has changed the way people work and play and, and everything right now has actually changed with the pandemic. However, What's good is that in the city, we have been seeing quite an uptick in contract activity over the past few weeks. As a matter of fact, our contracts have increased year over year for seven straight weeks. Uh, Sales have been level or above 2019 for the past 12 of 15 weeks. And cumulatively, sales in the past 15 weeks are up 7% from last year. So we've really, we've really come a long way. There was a period, as you said, Howard, uh, we really bottomed as far as contract activity in May. We only had around 160 contracts signed in that entire month, which is unprecedented really. But as of this past week, we've actually gone for two weeks in a row, over 200 contracts signed in a week. So last week, Two two weeks ago, we had 220, and this past week, ending on Friday, we had 202. So our deal volume and activity is is way up, and I think the energy 
uh, in the city is is up as well around all of this activity because obviously there's important things that need to be taken care of in the city but with real estate activity being up that means energy in the city people wanting to be in the city and revenue for the city so i think that's all in in the right trajectory Sarah, who are the people that are that are that are doing this purchasing? Is it the people who have moved out to the suburbs and bought single-family houses? Have they now changed their mind and you think they're coming back? Or are these people from other locations, or maybe people who live overseas, who see a uh, value in the depressed market and are just picking up good deals? Or is this those those people? Or are those people lost forever? The people that moved to Nassau and Suffolk and Westchester are they ever coming back? I do think they're coming back. You know, the thing about New York City is it, it's not for everybody, right? It's not everybody wanting to live in New York City, but if it is for you, there is nothing like it. There's one and only New York City. So people also cyclically come to New York City. There's certain times in people's lives when they want to live in the city and when they want to leave the city. And, and for some people, they do stay in the city all of the time. But I think that what is happening the purchasers right now that we're seeing i'm seeing it in the data and i'm just seeing it in our boots on the ground because we have a lot of active listings as well we are seeing new yorkers and people who love new york who are looking for the long-term vision the long-term possibility of being in the city those are the people that are buying predominantly right now we have not had as much foreign investment as we used to have for so many reasons, one of which people can't come. And it's really hard to travel right now. So we have been doing virtual transactions, some site unseen transactions, but people really do like to walk around in a space for the most part. So we've been able to, to utilize technology to do those things, but who's buying right now in the city are your New Yorkers who see a big opportunity and people again who love New York to see a big opportunity in the decrease in, in prices that we have right now. It's really a historic opportunity. And if you look at that and combine that with interest rates, if you need to have a loan or want to have a loan, you're able to have a lot more buying power now than you could before the pandemic and even before with, with um, interest rates being what they are. Thank you. Uh, Paul, normally when you evaluate investment properties, uh, you look at things like rent roll, occupancy rates, cap rates. Uh, with so many tenants not paying rent and hotels having not maybe if not zero occupancy, very, very low occupancy, how do you evaluate the value of an investment property in New York City in this market? It's radically different for each product type now. Um, you've got um, historically high vacancy and historically uh, lower rents uh, for multifamily apartment buildings. And the, uh, what people are doing is projecting you know, stability right? because everyone thinks that, uh, just the way Sarah described, that the, the residential world is gonna snap back. So where, where was the vacancy prior to the virus? Where, where were rents prior to the virus? Project out where do you think it's gonna stabilize and come back? And, um, and value the property accordingly that way. Um, on the hotel side, I think you've got to look at the fact that this will probably cause a significant reduction in hotel rooms around the city. 
uh, hotels will be repurposed. It's already starting. Um, so there, there will be, um, you know, there's a vaccine on the way. Um, tourism will be back, you know, that with a reduction in hotel supply, um, you're going to see that market firm up over the next couple of years as well. So every, every, every property type has a story. And um, I thought that I thought the retail market had hit bottom when um, just before the virus. And now and now we're at a new now we're at a new place. Um, but prior to that, I think technology had had had, re had altered the landscape for retail in a way that I, I think um, was, was stabilizing personal services businesses, the very ones that were hit the hardest. Um, by by the the virus um, had stabilized and and we're we're here to stay. So I think each one of these submarkets will stabilize and and come back. And I think um, you know I think Sarah and I and and you Howard are are so pro New York. Um, you know there've been there's been a pandemic during every century of New York's modern history. Um, in the 1800s, it was the Spanish flu. Uh, prior to that, a typhoid um, epidemic, you know, th there's always something, but New York comes back. And, um, you know, for instance, in the, in, in the uh, excuse me, the 1918 uh, Spanish flu outbreak, um, that was followed by a time in New York that we call the Roaring Twenties. So I think when people um, feel safe, want to come back, I, I think there'll be a euphoria that drives the market forward. See, but here's where I have a, an issue, and this is a question I'm going to ask both of you. To me, this is a little bit different than uh, a, catastrophic, a catastrophic event like the flu or 9-11 in that people are realizing, maybe the genie's out of the bottle, that they don't have to be working uh, in New York, in big offices, in conference centers. They can work virtually. And the acceleration of what I call the Zoom world, uh, I think, is making a change on how people are working. And if that is happening, even after the vaccine, which is going to happen sometime next year, that's gonna, that part's going to be over, are people going to be uh, so prone to be in big offices? Are they going to need to be in New York City, or can they work from some suburb or some exurb? and uh, not be in New York, and thereby affecting both the residential and the uh, investment markets. Uh, Sarah, what do you think about that? Well, I do think what it has done is changed the idea of home. Home means so much even more now than it did before because home is a place where now people are, are educating their, their kids and families. There is a wellness and medical component that can be done. Technology is really accelerating all the things that we can do from home, which is, is what you're saying. And it does change the need in some ways to be in a certain place if you don't want to be in that place. Like Paul was saying, I mean, I'm I'm so pro New York and I really feel, you know, I'm also not originally from New York. So I have this really great appreciation for the city and what it offers. And right now, obviously, it is not in it's not the same place that it was before the pandemic. We have closed theaters and restaurants and and some of the cultural centers. 
but our institutions are still here and will come back, as Paul was saying. And the energy of the city, when we have all of our arts open and Lincoln Center and people can enjoy the city again, I think this is just a temporary blip overall in people being able to use and utilize and wanting to be in the city. And as Paul pointed out, when there's safety and a quality of life that can be enjoyed again, people like to be in the city. So do they have to be in the city as much as before? No, maybe not. But will they want to be? I think that they will. And Paul, you know, I know you're not also a native New Yorker. I'm the only native New Yorker here. You're a Boston guy. Uh, What do you think about that, about the technology and the Zoom uh, changes that are are happening, that people are going to not want to work in these big office buildings? So I think um, the, we, we all know that there are a, a group of people who I feel like this virus has, has fast forwarded their, their world by about five years. So to those people, we're thinking about um, kicking back in retirement, uh, maybe working from home. To those people who were thinking about leaving the city, bringing their kids up uh, outside the urban environment, this has all moved that very, very quickly forward. But that's a that's a smallish segment of our world. The rest of the people out there who love New York City, um, you know, one, one of the things I, I learned when I was running for office was, and when I really got to know all the people in all the 75 distinct neighborhoods that are out there in, in the five boroughs, um, they all care about different things and, think about different things and worry about different things. But the one common note was that they all love being part of the fabric of New York City. And I think that will draw people back all throughout the city and bring them back to the schools, the universities, the theaters, the arts, and 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 business. And business. I, I really don't feel like this work from home thing is going to work for uh, preponderance of people. Um, we're running a services business. Sarah's in a services business. You are too, Howard. You, I don't think you can keep a, a team uh, connected in the way that you need to, unless you're you're you've got proximity to each other. You know that's true for for me and uh, and my generation. But I'm finding in in my law firm, the younger associates, the the people in their twenties and, and uh, early thirties. They look at it differently. They all they need is their computer, and uh, they don't seem to have the same need to connect. Uh, I think their DNA is a little different than ours. Maybe we're in a different generation, but I, I'm hoping that's not true. Think of them. Think of the young people at your firm, and think of the mentorship that you provide them. And 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 part of that is proximity. You know, overhearing a conversation that you're having with a key client. Um, Involving them in a in in, uh, in a meeting where um, there there's the, where most of the learning takes place, right? So I think um, they might be enjoying the moment uh, in some cases, but I think they're missing out. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I absolutely agree with that. You know, Paul, there's something I I wanted to um, to ask you uh, when we were talking about the valuation of properties, and you you very clearly explained. Uh, how people or how companies are evaluating the value of properties. 
But I wanted to also ask you about lenders. Uh, are lenders also projecting the same way and giving loans the same way uh, when there's so little occupancy on, on premises? Or is it harder to get uh, financing for companies that aren't maybe you know very uh, well capitalized to make purchases? Now, I think a lot of the lending institutions are probably being very conservative right now. Um, think of the think of the multifamily market where um, in mid two thousand and nineteen, we have rent regulations put in place that don't allow you to raise your rents on regulated apartments, don't allow you to uh, recoup money uh, from fixing up buildings. I don't think we've had enough data from that point. Um, and hadn't had a lot of uh, valuations done or sales completed on multifamily buildings since June of 19. And I think lenders are going to be really looking at those buildings saying, what is the loan of value here? What is the real value of this building that people used to buy in a 4% return? And now probably it's somewhere in the 7% return because there's no upside. Um, what is the real value of that asset? And I, so I think there are going to be loan-to-value challenges on debt maturities around rent-regulated apartment buildings, just by an example. So I think lenders are going to have to be very careful about finding data points that where it makes sense to make a, a safe conventional loan. Now, I've been finding from uh, clients who, who represent some banks and some other lenders that we refer clients to that the the lenders really aren't interested in, in giving loans on these properties. They're interested in the deposits. They bring bring over three or four or five million dollars in deposits, and then we'll talk to you about a loan. But if you're not going to do that, eh, we'll do it some other time. I mean, that's that's what I'm finding. Uh, it's, it's difficult to get the financing. Uh, anyway, I, I wanted to go to another topic. Um, and Paul, you know, and, and Sarah, I want to know what your feelings about this are going to be. Um, what do you think of the government response to, to all this and, and its effect in the uh, New York real estate market? I'm talking about the federal and state and local response. Did, could have they done something differently that would have uh, lessened the effect that New York is in right now? Which, I mean, in my mind, I, I go into the office, but I'm afraid to walk too far from my office because... The streets are not so safe right now. I don't remember another time I was afraid to walk around New York as I am now. Could the government have done something that would have made this whole situation better? Sarah, what do you think? I mean, listen, there's always, in hindsight, better ways to, to handle things. I do think that with quality of life being such an important thing in New York and safety and wanting to go to our parks and riding our public transportation. I think that the government needs to give people a couple of things. One is hope that this is going to get better. And then under that, a few steps that they're going to take in order to make that happen. You've got to give people confidence right now. And there are things that we need to improve in the city and health and safety is a big one. I mean, that's that's number one, really. If you're going to buy and put your, your life and your assets into the city, you wanna know they're gonna be protected. So as far as government response, Paul probably knows a bit more about yeah. that having having run, but I do think that there's there's definitely some hope and some messaging that needs to get out there from 
those in charge about coming to the city, what the plan is to make it safe, to make it great again, and to, it already is great, but to just bring back some of those institutions. What, what does that look like? And maybe it's an exciting time for opportunity for a vision of the future. What about putting something out there to people and, and getting them involved in the community in the city and asking them what they see as the future and how we can make that possible? I think that there really is a good opportunity for that to get to get more people involved. And Paul, what do you think? Would, could did the government screw up here? Could could the could our governor or our mayor or our president? have done things that would have uh, made this whole situation better. I particularly can't understand how a healthcare crisis became a political hot potato, things like wearing masks and, and such, which I think made things even worse. Could the government have done something? What do you think, Paul? Um, so many, so many angles on this. And, and by the way, this is just all my personal opinion. Um, we, we have people on all sides of this within our company and within our friends too. So um, I think the federal stimulus packages were great. I think that really helped a lot of people. I think that was critical. Um, That was, that was good work and it was dramatic work. Um, The New York city is going to need its own stimulus around um, repairing the city budget uh, which was was really badly wounded by the rent regulations and then by the virus. Um, the buildings, uh, most people don't focus on the fact that 45% of our city $97 billion budget comes from real estate taxes on buildings that were uh, were regulated and, and hurt. Um, and so we're super dependent on that. I don't think that was thought through well. I think the governor was interesting as a really strong communicator in the dark days, the early days, uh, very uh, showed a human side, uh, was that da- was data driven, was science driven. Um, that that was that was leadership at the time. Uh, but I think as far as New York City, um, we, we have a lack of discipline in the current administration that's really allowed quality of life to deteriorate. And that was happening pre-virus and it's been made worse by that apathy they, they seem to have. Um, but I think New York's going to need a cheerleader um, and New York is going to need um, to be attracting business, to be helping people who need help. Uh, social programs are going to be challenged by a very difficult budget. Um, so we should say, uh, New York city's open for business and, um, and we should really be careful and be monitoring our budget. So we don't hurt, we don't hurt folks who need our help the most. Well, I I think that's very true. And, uh, and Paul, uh, I want to thank you and Sarah, I want to thank you. This has been, I think, uh, extremely informative and and helpful to the people who are going to be listening to this. And um, I, I thank you so much for participating, and I want to thank all of you listening to the podcast and, and tell everyone that if they want any further information, that they can contact uh, Tony Ann, that's T-O-N-I-A-N-N-E, Ficken, at Tony Ann, T-O-N-I-A-N-N-E, at thestrategicforum.com, and we will put you in contact if you need to speak to... Uh, or have any further questions for the speakers, or you can call uh, myself at uh, Gets Fitzpatrick, which is 212-695-8100, extension 334. Thank you for listening, and uh, thank you all for participating, 
and uh, have a great day. And let's look forward to beyond COVID and the new world. Thank you.